Hi, and welcome to another episode of The Lawdown. Happy New Year. On this episode of The Lawdown, we have got quite a few stories to talk through with you, along with the rest of my colleagues. My name's Wani Sander, to introduce myself, um, and I've got with me today uh, Beth Hale, uh, Emma Bartlett, and Pooja Dasgupta. The three stories that we are going to be talking about today, the first is to do with cutting of sick pay for unvaccinated staff who've been required to isolate if they've been a close contact of someone who's tested positive. And a few big companies have decided to take that action for their staff and implement that policy. Next, we're also going to talk about this idea of apologies or non-apologies. And we've seen that happen in the House of Commons and with our own Prime Minister. And thirdly, we will be talking about Prince Andrew and some of what's been going on in the US uh, with his legal team. So without further ado, we're going to get right into it and start off with the sick pay story. So Beth, do you want to tell us a little bit more about what's been going on there? Yeah, so quite a few employers, including Next, Morrison's, Ikea, have announced that in respect of employees who have not uh, received the COVID-19 vaccination, they will pay only statutory sick pay during periods where those people have to self-isolate. The key thing there being that they pay contractual enhanced sick pay to other to all staff when they are off sick and they will continue to pay enhanced pay to anyone who is off sick if they have COVID or any other illness for the contractual period. But what they're saying is that where someone has to self-isolate, having been in close contact with a COVID case, um, the only people in those circumstances who have to self-isolate are the unvaccinated um, that they will only pay statutory sick pay for that period. So they're making a distinction between vaccinated and non-vaccinated staff for those purposes. And that's obviously a controversial thing to do. It's quite high. You know, there's been a lot of discussion around the benefits of vaccinations, the efficacy of vaccinations and what, and what that means for employers. Um, there was a lot of press coverage last year, sort of no jab, no job policies. And the government have made vaccinations compulsory for care home workers and they are, they will soon be compulsory for NH for NHS staff as well so it's kind of high profile high controversy I think but I think so the questions are as of what the employment law issues are arising the sort of key thing for me is could it be discriminatory could it be discriminatory against those staff for any reason um and I guess my preliminary view is probably not. I mean, you need to be aware also as an employer of all the contractual issues. So you need to make sure that you're not breaching a contractual obligation to pay sick pay in those circumstances. But I think a sort of opposition to um, vaccination is unlikely to be a, a protected belief for the purpose of the Equality Act. It's not, um, I think it will depend on the particular circumstances and the particular reasons why someone is opposed to a vaccination. And anti-vaccination views are not uniform and different people have different reasons for not wanting to get the vaccination so that's a sort of but generally I think that's unlikely but the issue is that that kind of policy might have a disproportionate impact on people from certain ethnic or religious groups who are less likely to get the vaccination for various reasons and that could give rise to a, an indirect discrimination claim but I think probably an employer might well be able to justify that policy on the basis of legitimate business needs particularly where case rates are high, absences are high, and businesses are suffering as a result of that. So I think that they would also have to show then that their policy was proportionate. And I think that they, and, and that they had considered other, you know, whether, whether there was a less discriminatory way of achieving that. And I think all, what all these policies seem to have in common is that they do allow for 
flexibility. They allow for individual circumstances. If someone has some mitigating reasons why they can't get vaccinated, so if they have a medical reason for not getting vaccinated, they won't be subject to the policy. Um, and they do give the employer the opportunity to take personal circumstances into account. So I think it is likely that they would be lawful for those purposes, from for employment law purposes. I think there are some employee relations issues around sort of communicating the policies um, and, and, and how people react to that. And also around how honest people are about what their reasons for their absence is and whether they it encourages sort of dishonesty. There are also, and I don't propose we go into these in much detail today, but there are also some data protection issues around when you can and can't obtain and record and process people's vaccination status. So it's, it's a pretty complex area. I think, I think the, um, one of the difficulties here is, as you say, Beth, the um, GDPR constraints in that retaining records of somebody's vaccination status is not really something that an employer wants to go near if they have to, because it is such um, sensitive personal data. And um, that could make it difficult, whilst in theory, the policy um, appears to be fine in practice, there could be some practical difficulties in operating it, because if somebody then tells you that they are unvaccinated, um, there has to be some method in recording that. Then there has to be some buy-in from the workforce for it to operate in practice, for people to be honest about the reason why they are being absent from the workplace um, and disclosing their vaccination status, which is such a controversial issue. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, one one potential way around it I've seen suggested is you just say, you know, if you have to, if someone has to self, you ask someone why they're self-isolating, they say, because I've been in, in contact with a COVID case. Well, the only reason under the current rules why you would have to self-isolate having been in close contact is because you're unvaccinated. So without, but I mean, I think I'm not sure that totally gets you there because then you kind of have the information by the back door, don't you? True, but, um, but nevertheless, it is a way of, you're actually not recording that that person is vaccinated or not if the question is are you legally obliged to self-isolate at present because you've been in close contact yes and yes I, yeah. I guess that that will do it I think employers do need to think carefully as you say about the um, employee relations message here and whether there's um, another way that they can promote or encourage vaccination through um, educational persuasion um, rather than what could be seen as a punitive step. Yeah, I mean, I do think this is much more likely to be justifiable and, and potentially sort of proportion, viewed as proportionate than, than a pure kind of no jab, no job policy. But I think even those, um, and there was an employment tribunal case I saw reported yesterday where it had been found to be a reasonable policy to, in, in, a, in a particular, it was in a care home, but it was before it was uh, required by law. So I think courts will be sympathetic, tribunals will be sympathetic, I think, to employers trying to manage the, what is obviously a very sensitive area. And, you know, I think that, but employers do have to think quite carefully about how they manage that, how they communicate it to staff and what they can do to encourage people to get vaccinated without, as you say, taking sort of punitive measures against those who don't. Entirely reasonable for employers to seek to encourage um, as many of their employees to be in work as possible because they have customer demands to meet. Um, that is a legitimate objective. And also to make sure that their sick pay pot of money can go as far as possible. Um, 
by having these policies in place. I think taking your point, Beth, that employers need to think carefully about how they justify the policy. You can't just, as an employer, say, well, we're going to have this policy because IKEA have it, for example. You have to think about your own reasons and why you as an organisation are justifying it. Yeah, and why your workforce, why it's necessary and proportionate in your workforce. I think it's really important to think that through and document those decisions so that you've got a sort of paper trail of why you've made that decision. Yeah. And it is obviously an issue right now, I guess, as the law develops. And I mean, there is a suggestion, there's certainly been a suggestion this week that from the end of March, you won't even be legally required to isolate if you've had, if you've tested positive. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a short term potentially short-term measure depending on what happens obviously but it's I mean it's hugely controversial and you can see just from the reactions to some of the news stories that you know people have very very strong views on on anything to do with vaccination and and but on both sides of the argument so yeah I think that's right so yeah thank you for that uh, Beth and Emma very interesting analysis so our next story is around apologies or non-apologies in some cases. And quite recently, in June of last year, a Conservative MP by the name of Daniel Korzenski, I believe his name is, apologised in the Commons after an investigation had found that he'd ranted at a senior Commons official, he'd called another a snowflake and useless, and he'd denigrated a third member using WhatsApp, and this was all after having drunk and uh, quite a lot of alcohol. Um, But earlier on in the same day, when he'd made his apology, he had also spoken to uh, a BBC radio station and the Daily Mirror, um, and he'd complained that the process that required him to apologise was unfair, and he'd had no choice but to do it. He'd also, in one of the live radio interviews that he he undertook, identified the specific job of one of the complainants in breach of confidentiality. Uh, And he was made by the Common Standards Committee to make a fresh apology because they felt that the original one had been undermined, um, the sincerity of it had been undermined, but he was also suspended, but for a limited period of time. So the second uh, story linked to that is the recent apology made by the Prime Minister over Number 10's lockdown parties, which have been constantly in the news. Um, And his apology was also framed by some as an actual non-apology because he, he said sorry uh, that other p- people thought that COVID regulations were broken. We will probably not comment much further about, about the legitimacy of that apology, but it does bring wait to the... the uh, have to wait for the Sue Gray report before we can comment. <laughs> we will. No one can comment on anything until Sue Gray has told us what to think. Um, it does bring to the fore the issue of the value of apologies generally uh, within the employment context. Um, and they are used occasionally, um, but I think quite a lot of practitioners are fearful of using them in some contexts. Um, and there are there are different types of apologies, I think, is the first point we would raise. Um, there are apologies which seem to be the sort of apology that was applied in this case, which were applied as sanctions. So those are, you're told, essentially, that for the conduct that you've been found to have done, you should apologise, and you're made to do it. Um, those sorts of apologies may differ from other apologies, which are negotiated or agreed, you could say voluntarily or willingly, by one party um, and given in the context of of trying to resolve a dispute. And usually the hope is in those contexts, apologies work much better. 
it's something that within the employment context, I at least haven't seen very much of it because I think there is uh, a concern that apologising also somehow amounts to an admission of liability. And um, I think individuals themselves and uh, practitioners are, are keen to try and minimise that even in the context of a settlement. Um, but they do have their place. They are official in some cases where apologies aren't things that you can get from the employment tribunal, for example, and they can't impose an apology by way, you know, by way of a judgment. Um, but it is something that could be agreed in an, an alternative dispute resolution context, like a mediation, for example. I think another thing to focus on is actually how they can be useful. And I took a little, little look at this in terms of how apologies can usefully be made. And often for sincere apologies to be made, lots of writing on the subject have said that it's about it being sincere and honest and about the person expressing uh, regret, remorse, but not as a way to explain or excuse their behaviour, but as a genuine way to show that they understand where the other person um, is coming from. And then it's about, in some cases, making changes in the future. In employment cases, in terms of, you know, an employer, if an apology to an employee about discrimination, for example, that they've experienced at the hand of a co-colleague, and they may decide that after that apology, they also look to make changes in the future. So that goes hand in hand with the apology. It's not just the words, it's the action that they put into place as well. So Pooja, what, what are your thoughts about whether or not to give apologies within the context of settlement agreements that we tend to deal with? Yeah, I mean, it's a really interesting area, I think, not least because I think an apology can, in, in a lot of instances, can probably go a really long way in parties actually meeting in the middle. And as you say, you know, showing a genuine understanding of the other side's position in in sometimes very early stages of a dispute. And that might actually end up avoiding litigation being initiated entirely or if litigation's been commenced or kind of a dispute afoot in some way it could potentially manage the expectations of the the claimant who probably feels considerably aggrieved by in the way they've been treated and just a few words that are spoken in a genuine way to kind of understand that person's position um, can not only kind of mitigate the legal risk but obviously you know the potential reputational implications of a, a kind of dispute progressing um, so I do think that there is scope for it as you say people can get quite worried about you know what that means uh, in terms of kind of admission of liability but I don't necessarily think that that detracts from you know if, if if it was to be made you know in a mediation context or as part of a settlement you know the without prejudice cover probably goes some way to kind of protecting the 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 company or the individual who's who's putting forward that apology um whether or not that makes it seem less genuine to the to, to the claimant or you know the person that's made the complaint that's another situation but at least it goes some way to to showing that there is a willingness to kind of actually reach agreement um, in relation to these to the issue at hand. Um, I I also had a little look online about you know what people were thinking about uh, you know in the legal context giving apologies, and actually apparently there was um, a ten minute rule bill called the Apologies Bill that um, was presented to Parliament by John Howell MP on the 1st of December 2020. 
it's like many other bills it's passed its first reading but hasn't yet progressed to to second reading uh, since 2020 understandably there are other more pressing matters to be considered but in that bill uh, Mr Howell was seeking to promote a bill that in which apologies can be given without civil legal liability that he says could run into millions of pounds. And he specifically justified the proposed legislation by reference to cases involving medical errors. Um, and again, he was saying that sometimes all you need, all that's required is an apology, which is often not forthcoming for fear of potential legal com- uh, legal claims for compensation. Um, but he, he said that in quite a limited context, obviously it has more far far-reaching implications but I can certainly see in a kind of clinical negligence or or other you know claims in tort in that kind of context how an apology can certainly uh, go a a really long way and people should actually consider providing one on that basis I don't I don't necessarily think that that legislation will be passed I don't know whether there's real kind of grounds for it whether it's even needed because as we've said I think there's still a place for it even without specific legislation on apologies um, so, yeah, I definitely think it's something that we as advisors should consider discussing through with our clients as to whether or not that's an option, um, you know, leaving their pride aside and other issues. I think, yeah, I agree. I think where it's offered genuinely and part of it, I think um, parties are probably often too quick to dismiss an apology as, a, as an effective way of, get, of moving discussions along for fear of that exactly that it looks like it's admitting liability and, and often apologies become a bit you know uh, I say this obviously as a lawyer a, a bit lawyered and so you sort of end up saying well you know we regret any uh, you know any hurt caused and you know it comes across as not genuine and I think when I read that story about the Tory MP the Daniel, Daniel Kaczynski case I what I thought was it's like the kind of apology I used to give to my siblings when I was forced to apologize in a like you know in a fight with my fingers crossed behind my back it's sort of if someone doesn't mean it then it's meaningless isn't it you know it's, it, it has to be in some way genuine and the person receiving it has to know that it's in some way genuine so a, an apology that's forced as part of a settlement agreement or that's you know um imposed on someone when they don't really want to apologize is, is doesn't get you anywhere but if it's genuinely felt and I think often parties in disputes, you know, individuals rather than the organisations, but the individuals might be really willing to apologise and just say, look, you know, I'm, I am genuinely really sorry. And that can move things along. Yeah, I think there is some sort of power in in just being heard and in it being recognised that they've been through something. And I guess the question is, in certain contexts, who that comes from, if it's from a, um, an organisation, an institution, and we've seen that also in, in different contexts. Um, the last point I wanted to pick up on in, in this story was the breach of confidentiality by the Conservative MP in revealing the name of one of the, or I don't think it was the actual name, but it might have been the job of one of the complainants, just for employers' confidentiality provisions which require them to keep the details, for example, of a certain complaint or um, that is being uh, settled by the settlement agreement confidential um, and how they then seek to control those people who are subject to those provisions. It's often quite difficult, I think, within most settlement agreements where you do want to control specific individuals, those individuals will be specifically named, but where the confidentiality obligation is on uh, a bigger entity or bigger sort of organisation, it's much harder to be able to to police that. Um, It's quite likely, you know, small office gossip, people will talk about it, oh, so-and-so has left, 
and talk about it over, I was going to say over the water cooler, but of course it'll be over Zoom now, maybe WhatsApp video, maybe Instagram live, whatever your means of contact um, is, is how people will tend to talk about and gossip out about these things. But it's still quite important, I think, for employers where they do enter into uh, such confidentiality provisions to at least try or, or seek to maintain the obligations that they've entered into. And that could you know, be by practical things, trying to speak to the key individuals and, and remind them of their obligations. If it's to do with specific information, make sure that that information is secure and isn't accessible by everyone and anyone. Um, and it's that sort of thing. But I think within most places, it, it's very hard to keep certain information confidential when you're talking about settling of disputes. Yeah, as a claimant in those, sorry, as a claimant no, no, no. in those circumstances, I think you need to be a bit careful what you wish for. Because if you're saying I want you to police everybody and tell everybody, you know, and and, and give an undertaking as an organisation that none of your staff will disclose any confidential information, then what you're essentially saying is you need that that the employer would then need to communicate with all its staff to say, here is this confidential information. You mustn't share it. Was actually, you know, often most of those people might not know there might be gossip but there won't necessarily be sort of concrete knowledge and so in in order to sort of impose a confidentiality obligation on someone they need to know what they're not allowed to say so you might be sharing information that they don't already have so you need to just think I mean I think when you're negotiating those clauses important to um yeah think about what you're actually asking for and what you want to happen it's worth also thinking about even before you kind of enter into the negotiation of a settlement agreement during grievance processes disciplinary processes like how to manage confidentiality whilst those processes are ongoing because we I mean we see it all the time where there are breaches of confidentiality or scope for breaches of confidentiality and it it often starts with um there being particular sensitivity from the the complainants uh, part who you know might want to remain anonymous and makes that quite clear when they make the complaint and uh then the the company or the organization has to kind of manage that and manage their expectations in terms of what they can promise in respect of their kind of anonymity and confidentiality moving forward. Obviously, they can do their best and use their reasonable endeavours and, and, and all sorts, but you, I think they need, it's really important to kind of manage that from the outset and also make it clear to all the participants in that kind of whatever investigation it is within that process that any breach of the confidentiality will be taken seriously and potentially treated as a disciplinary matter. So I think from from an early stage, I think managing confidentiality and making sure that it doesn't get out of control from an early stage is always helpful to an employer. Indeed. So just moving on to our third story, which is around uh, Prince Andrew, who's who had sought, uh, I think he sought to rely on the benefit of a waiver of the right to sue in regards to the Jeffrey Epstein settlement. Um, and we want to discuss some of the employment implications in the UK. So Beth's going to tell us a little bit more about this story. Thanks, Wanu. Yeah, so I think, um, I mean, it, important to note sort of caveats before we uh, before we start this, which is that this is not an employment case. Um, and it's also not a UK law case. So we're, we're what we're going to focus on is sort of what, how it might play out in the UK rather than looking at the actual facts here but essentially what what Prince Andrew's lawyers were trying to do was say that he could not be um, sued in a civil case by Virginia Dufresne because she had signed a settlement agreement with Jeffrey Epstein um, which said in which she agreed to release acquit satisfy and forever discharge all claims and other actions against 
Epstein, but also against the said second parties and any other person or entity who could have been included as a potential defendant. And she got payment under that agreement from, from Epstein. Um, and it, it was an incredibly widely drafted claim, um, waiver. And it said it covered all claims that she can, shall, or may have against Jeffrey Epstein or other potential defendants um, from the beginning of the world to the day of this release. So it was, it was really, really broad and long. Um, uh, so it covered all, in theory, covered all claims arising out of past conduct, including those of which she was unaware at the time. But it didn't, it didn't importantly weigh future claims uh, from the date of that agreement. Although I think that the claim against Prince Andrew was predated that agreement in any event, the, the sort of events which gave rise to the, the alleged events which gave rise to the claim. So he he lost his uh, his uh, case in the in the US his his argument in the US about whether he could rely on that clause or not and the, the US court found that it was too broadly drafted and it couldn't he couldn't rely on it and so the the proceedings by Virginia Dufrey could go ahead against Prince Andrew but it was just quite interesting to think about what a clause like that might how that might play out in the UK and how that how it might impact on things that we're drafting as employment lawyers on employment claims. Yeah, um, I mean, why, while you're absolutely right in um, highlighting that that is nothing to do with an employment case, those sort of waivers are typically um, found in settlement agreements um, between employers and employees. And um, it would certainly be our advice where there's an intention to specifically carve out um, or sorry, specifically include within the waiver um, potential claims um, that you can contemplate having at that time that you are specific about it because um, the broader the waiver, the less likely it, there will be that um, a court is going to be minded to enforce it. And um, yeah, just saying any potential defendants was just way too broad. Um, because who knew what was within contemplation of who those defendants could possibly be at that time. So it is the sort of thing that we come across in that respect, where from an employment perspective, we would look very carefully to make sure we identify the particular claims that can be in contemplation, um, even if there is that catch-all provision to try and capture all and any claims arising anywhere in the world, but um, you have to be quite specific. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if many listeners will remember, but the, there was the um, claims uh, made against the uh, BCCI back in the 1980s, where employees of that um, financial institution had been made redundant and signed settlement agreements. And then um, subsequent to them having done that, they um, then suffered stigma following the collapse of the bank. And um, they sought to then bring claims for stigma damages, um, that those claims were allowed um, because at the time that they signed their redundancy agreements, it was certainly nothing that was within the contemplation of the parties that they could then subsequently suffer stigma because they, they just didn't know about um, any wrongdoing or alleged wrongdoing. The difference here in relation to Prince Andrew case is that at the time she signed that agreement, it was after the alleged uh, unlawful acts by Prince Andrew and so there is more of an argument, possibly, that, that it would have been within the contemplation and that therefore he could. So I think a, a waiver has to be, you, you can waive claims in that way, and you can waive claims against third parties who aren't party to an agreement. 
but it has to be the wording has to be clear and sufficiently clear and so that everybody understands what what that means and and uh and who against whom claims claims are waived um but i suppose there is an argument that you know that that could cover prince andrew where in circumstances where he was a known associate of of epstein and had allegedly done the things he had done at that time so that's not what the new york court found but i think it's quite it's quite an interesting discussion around whether you actually have to name people or or really clearly identify them in, in a waiver clause in that way yeah certainly for a belt and braces approach i would would be seeking to name people if you've got them in mind and, con and uh, parties that you're contemplating you'd have them in mind wouldn't you yeah so i think for an organization entering into a settlement agreement if there are people against whom you think claims might be brought or so who are implicated in a claim you want those you want those people to be named yeah. and sometimes people will be reluctant to have their names put into a settlement agreement um because they just don't want sort of they don't want their names anywhere near a, a particular dispute but i think that you know that if, if they're not named they're less likely to be covered to a later stage if, if proceedings are issued and certainly if their names have been part of a series of allegations mm. um, it would be best advice but yeah I mean it's really it's a really interesting case and I think it will continue to throw up although as I say not directly employment related I think it will it continues to throw up issues around sort of um, how these kinds of claims so sexual harassment claims and particularly historic sexual harassment claims are dealt with in the UK thank you Emma thank you Beth that's a very interesting discussion and I guess we'll have to wait and see what happens with the Prince Andrew case um, more generally. So that's everything for today's Lawdown podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you enjoyed the content. Uh, thanks to Beth, thanks to Emma, thanks to Pooja. If you want to look for any more of our content, we have lots of it on our website, which is www.cm-murray.com. And for now, goodbye and we'll see you next time.